But there is a group of people getting ready to leave. I guess we ask ourselves the question, we looking up, we ready to go? Thankful for that. You're all welcome here tonight. God bless you for coming. And we're glad to have the children. I'd like to talk to them a few minutes again if we could. So if the children that want to take part in children's meeting want to come up here, well, come on up. I just want to say one more thing before I begin the message. I told my wife today that I was leaning on you kind of hard to pray for, and she acted like that was a good thing. She was okay with that. She said she could use it. So thanks. <laughs> Appreciate it. And they have survived well, I think. so. Thank you for your prayers for these meetings, too. We really need God. We really need what God can do. See, we can help each other with truth. We can help each other with teaching God's truth. But I really believe it's only God that can get the conviction in our heart to where it grabs a hold of us and makes it something that we can really live out in daily life. That's, that's really something that God needs to do. All right. You, I'm sure as Bible readers you've read the story that I'm going to base the message tonight on. I'm going to base this message tonight on the story of the Rechabites. And, uh, by the way, but if you didn't ever read the New Old Testament, you didn't get the story. But if you've read the whole Bible, you have. So, uh, lessons from the Rechabites. Please open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 35. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about these Rechabites before we read the story that's found in Jeremiah 35. Um, one of the reasons that we need to look up in our day is the truth of what Brother Josh said. So many people are looking down. There's so much negativism. There's so much hate. At every level, religiously, politically, uh, racially, and you just keep on going down the list. A lot of despair. A lot of folks feel like in the end it's never going to get better. And I guess at the human level they're probably right. But yes, the Bible said when you start to see these evidences that the, we're in these perilous times, these last times, Instead of getting discouraged and all down the mouth, we Christians are to look up. I'm not going to spend a lot of time this evening talking about all the negative stuff that's in our world. I think if you are, are intelligent and awake, you know we have a lot of difficulties in our world today. I certainly believe we're in those times that Paul spoke to Timothy about perilous times. It's not... For us here tonight in South Boston, we're probably not in tremendous physical peril, although that's happening more and more in our world today. Um, 
but spiritual peril. The danger that we will get cold and indifferent and lukewarm and and we will not be spiritually alive in Jesus Christ when he comes. We're in those times. But it's not the first time in history that times were like that. And Jonadab, the son of Rechab, and I don't know why the Bible calls them Rechabites when it was really Jonadab that made these decisions, but he was the son of Rechab. And this man, he was different. We would really think he was different if he was a member in this church. I mean, he asked some strange things of his family. Now, he did some things we would do. He told his boys, his girls, he said, I don't want you drinking any wine. We'd, we'd be okay with that. We'd say, okay, that's not that it's wrong to drink a glass of wine, but we just realized that many people go beyond that, so we kind of stay away from wine. I think that's a good idea. He, uh, he said, I don't want you to live in a city. Now, I would, I would qualify that if I was saying that. Because I lived in the city quite a few years. Uh, I would say don't live in the city unless you're there to conquer the city instead of letting it conquer you. In other words, if you're there to help people know Jesus, fine. But if you're in there just to have nightlife, get out of there. Um, but Jonadab said to his children, don't want you to live in the city. Uh, he also said, I don't want you to plant vineyards. I guess he was still concerned about those wine glasses, you know. He said, don't want you to, uh, don't want you to plant crops. I want you to be shepherds, live in tents. Yeah, they weren't even to build houses. Wouldn't quite work in southern Virginia. <laughs> Your perfume might worse than gel in certain times of the year. If you lived in tents. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what all made Jonadab well known in Israel. And by the way, Jonadab lived in a time that Judah and Israel had already divided as nations. I, I suppose most of you know from reading your Bibles that there were some godly kings in Judah. But there was never even one godly king. In Israel. They were all wicked. Or at least by the time their life was over they turned wicked. And Israel just kept going down further and further. First of all, the first king of Israel who was, who took most of the kingdom away from Solomon's son, established calves in Israel for the Israelites to worship instead of going to the tabernacle, the temple to worship. And so that became idolatry to the Israelites. And uh, yeah, they just kept going downhill more and more. They, uh, Baal worship become a tremendous part of, of their idolatry too. And so at one point, Jehu was made king. Remember Jehu? Anybody remember anything notable about Jehu? Yeah, did you ever hear of anyone who drives like Jehu? The Bible says he, drew, he drove furiously. Uh, apparently he was known for, I mean, when he came to attack 
the king's court, they identified who was coming by how fast he drove. He had a reputation. And, uh, but Jehu was told by a prophet that he was to be king, and he was supposed to destroy Ahab in his house. And so he did that. He was the one that had Jezebel. You remember Jezebel? Jehu was the one that had Jezebel killed. He told her eunuchs to throw her out the window, and they, and they did. And then he ran over with his horses. He wasn't the most gentle guy in the world. but. Um, and then after that happened, he meets Jonadab in the streets. And he says to Jonadab, he says, is your heart right with me as my heart is with you? And so Jonadab had a reputation too. Apparently he was known as someone, I don't know whether they already lived out in the country and already didn't drink wine and all that stuff or not, but he was known as one of the righteous men in Israel. And Jehu says to him, is your heart right with me as I am with you? And Jonadab said it is, and so he took him up in the chariot. And then they went and they tricked all the Baal worshipers. Uh, Jehu said, we're going to have a special day to worship Baal. And they gathered all the Baal priests and all the Baal worshipers together, and they had special vestments, special coats and vests and stuff they put on them. And they said, you look and make sure that we don't have any corruption in the house of Baal. You know, they really laid it on thick, and it was all a, a ruse. But they, they got everybody inside the house of Baal that was Baal worshipers, and they made sure they had Baal-worshipping robes so they could be identified. They got them all in there. Jonadab did this with Jehu. And then they put 80 men around the outside, and Jehu said, if you let any man escape, it's going to be your life for his. And they wiped them all out. And actually, God honored that, that they got rid of Baal worship. But the problem with Jehu is, he never got rid of those calves, and he allowed idolatry to continue on with Israel. But Jonadab was a righteous man. And I, the, only way, the only reason he joined up with Jehu, I believe, was to get rid of Baal out of Israel. Now, so he set these standards up for his household, and his children learned to live differently than most of Israel. Serve God and live for God. And we get to Jeremiah 35. Did anybody here ever figure out how much later that was in history? I think it was at least 200 years. So we're down the road now, 200 years from when Jonadab lived. And God dis, does something really different. Sometimes when God wants to get people's attention, he does something really different. And God goes to Jeremiah, a faithful prophet, and he says, Jeremiah, you go talk to the house of Jonadab, the Rechabites, and you invite them to come to the temple. And when they come to the temple, set bowls of wine in front of them. And asked them to drink the wine and see what happens. We'll start reading Jeremiah 35, verse 1. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, 
Go into the house of the Rechabites and speak unto them and bring them into the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Then it took Jasoniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Havasaniah, and his brethren and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Edeliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalem, the keeper of the door. And I set before, him, before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink ye wine. Now you've got to remember, this was the Lord's faithful prophet saying this. This, this would be like if, if Brother Nathan would call you into church someday and say, Brother, I just feel like today we should all sip some wine together. And I got it here in cups for you. And maybe you would say, not that your father said no, maybe you'd say, hey, don't we have a standard against this? And, uh, but I mean, it's, a, it's the leader of the church saying, you know, hey, the Lord told me to say this. We're, we're to drink some wine together. Jeremiah said, you know, the Lord asked me to bring you here and I said, this, drink some wine. You know what they said? But they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechah, of our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, not have any, but all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he hath charged us. He goes on talking about this. Now, verse 16. Because the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he hath commanded them. This is God's speaking. But this people have not hearkened unto me. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken unto them, but they have not heard, and I have called unto them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said unto the house of Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and have done according unto all that he hath commanded you, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. Now, if you're a godly father here tonight, I don't know how you feel. I trust you feel this way. But I'll take this for a promise. To, do you know that it's rare in church history that a church will stay faithful to God 100 years? I'm sorry to have to say that, but that's the truth. There are rare exceptions. But most times within 100 to 150 years, churches will drift away from the truth and then new churches have to start up and, and turn back to God again. And here's a family that 200 years down the road were still honoring God to the point where God said, 
there will always be a member of this family that stands before me. I suppose somewhere in the world tonight, we don't know who they are, but there are Rechabites serving God somewhere. That's what he said. There will always be somebody of this family that stands before me. And God was not angry that they had obeyed the voice of their father because in the end that meant that they were also serving him. Now, this same principle is repeated in the New Testament. Uh, and, and I'm well aware tonight that we can run into real dangers if we're just living the Christian life according to the status quo. Or if we're living the Christian life as legalists and just trying to obey the letter of the law and don't have the love of God in our hearts. But I'm also well aware that if we love the Lord Jesus and we're disciples of his, it fleshes out in shoe leather living. And it fleshes out in practical decisions we make that, that help us to honor the Lord and not follow the follies of the world. I would just like to cite you a few key passages <coughs> that defend and promote Rechabite-type decisions. And just let me hurriedly say that I don't think God nor the people of God are encouraging tent living today. And I don't think we have a problem with planting seeds in fields or uh, having a vineyard even. But there are other issues that are today's issues that we need to be concerned about practical, sensible decisions so that when Jesus comes, we're part of those who are looking for him and not one of those who are so intent on looking down. So first of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm not going to make a lot of comment about these passages. I think they speak pretty clearly for themselves. You, all I'm going to ask you to do is, as I read these passages, think of Jonadab, the son of Rechab. Think of that principle of making practical decisions so that we have a holy lifestyle in a time when the vast majority of people including religious people, don't live a holy lifestyle. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, if you want to know where I'm going with this, if you want to obey these verses, you've got to be really careful with Fox News, okay? 
and a lot of other things. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, lest I be considered just singling someone out, that's because that's the news station I look at. You have to be careful with CNN and MSNBC and whatever else news you read, too. <laughs> All right. Touch not the unclean thing. First Peter 1. Verses 13 to 16. <clears throat> Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance. Let me just paraphrase that a little bit. Not choosing your lifestyle based on society's values. Verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of lifestyle. That's what conversation there means. Because, as, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 5. And we want to start reading with verse 21. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. Prove all things. And it's sort of like the idea of go into the lab and put everything in a test tube. Examine it. Prove all things. Put it to the test. Hold fast that which is good. It's as simple as if you look at an issue, an activity, a value... And it honors the Lord Jesus Christ and, the, and it pleases the Holy Spirit. Then do it. Hold fast to it. Make it part of your lifestyle. But abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Andrew Murray said that means through and through. Top to bottom, front to back, your whole life experience. Let God set you aside for his purposes through and through. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Now, I just want to cite you a few areas in today's world where I think we need to do some Rechabite-type decisions, where I think it's important and some of these things are not even sin in themselves, but we need to be wise about what leads us closer to the Lord and what moves us away from God. And uh, sometimes the church needs to look at some of this and make some recobite decisions. I believe the church that you're a part of and I'm a part of did that years ago. We decided not to have televisions. I don't believe the television... Maybe you're not going to be happy with me, but I don't think the television is sin. And I believe there are going to be people who are going to be in heaven who had a television. I can tell you one thing, they're not going to be in heaven if they had a television, if they used it to practice sin. But, you know, uh, maybe they were able to handle it. But I believe the church made a good Rechabite decision when it decided to not expose ourselves to the contamination of television. That was one of yesteryear. 
Now we have to deal with such issues as social media, internet, uh, Spotify, and you can just keep adding on things. Uh, the influences that come in. <coughs> and so, wreck-a-bite uh, decisions. The church needs to make some. But the church can't make them all, and I don't even think it should try to make them all. Some of the Rechabite decisions need to be made by fathers and mothers who say, in our home, this is the way we're going to do things. That's what Jonadab did, right? He wasn't in a position to make a standard for the whole Israel, but he made it for his home. And I repeat something I said earlier. Wouldn't you be okay with, if God would say, if you live this way in your home, your children will be faithful to God for the next 200 years. Would you grab onto that one? Well, I'll tell you, I would. I mean, I think if my descendants stay faithful to God for 200 years, I'll let someone else worry about beyond that. But at least if it carries on that far, I, I think it's been a very godly effort. And then there are some Rechabite decisions, folks, that you and I have to make for ourselves because we're not all the same. Some things that's maybe a bad weight in your life or temptation is not for me a bad temptation. Other things, you know, uh, hey, I don't know whose toes I'm getting on here. Uh, I have a real struggle with certain things, but you know something that don't bother me at all? I'm not the least bit interested in trophy hunting. I'm sorry, folks. And uh, I just saw, I just saw a, a nice deer head in the room tonight. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not judging you at all for that. But I do believe there are people who get too carried away with it, spend tens of thousands of dollars on professional hunts, and just really, you know, become carnal with it. And if that's you, maybe you'll have to do a personal wreck of bite decision. See? It varies from person to person, but there are things that each one of us need to decide. This is a weight in my life, or this is a, uh, this is a stumbling block that leads me into besetting sins. And so I'm not going to do that. I already told you I, I really like to read, and I get in trouble sometimes in my reading. I'm going to tell you something that I try to do that probably some of you don't have any problem with at all. I basically will not go in a secular bookstore unless I have family with me. Just stay out of them. And some of you can go in there and not have the least bit of temptation at all, but not me. And so I make a little bit of a wreck -a bite decision there. Is that okay? And for you it might be something else, but we have to take some personal choices sometimes so that we can walk as holy people. I like to repeat that. There's some things need to be decided at church level. There's some things need to be decided at family level. There's some things need to be decided at personal level. But the bottom line of all of it, you and I need to be free from the entanglements of sin, the world, and the devil to be free to serve Jesus Christ. And you and I have the personal responsibility if something's tripping us up, if something is holding us back, and I think Jonadab looked at the society of Israel and he said, we got a bunch of drunks, we got a bunch of evil happening in cities, we got a bunch of people who are getting carried away with building mansions for themselves. 
I'm going to ask my children not to do any of that. And it worked. And what we need today in America is not those exact things, but we need that heart. That heart that says, I'm going to do what it takes so that my life is free in Christ. I don't believe anybody's sinless perfect. perfect. It's not that. If you think you're sinless and perfect, can I talk with you after the service? Got a couple questions for you. But I, I think God expects and he has a right to expect that our heart is turned toward him and we're not living in bondage to sin. And I want to tell you something. If you're in bondage to any sin, there's something you can do about it. I'm convinced that if we add spirit power on the positive side and prune, cut, and flee on the negative side, there can come a moment in anybody's life when they cross over to victory. I don't care what your besetting sin is. If you keep seeking God for power on the power side and keep cutting and fleeing until you get all that influence out of your life that's dragging you down, there's a moment when you can have victory in Christ Jesus. You don't, you don't need to, I don't need to, go on in repetitive defeat and defeat and defeat and dishonor God and affect the brotherhood and lose ground with Christ. Don't do it. I mean, eternity depends on it. You have to do what it takes, and that's where these Rechabite decisions enter in. Some of these things are not always sin in and of themselves. I mentioned bookstores. It's not sin in and of itself to go into a bookstore. It's, it's not, well, there's just a lot of things like that. It's not sin to go hunting. But I believe there are some people who sin in hunting. There are some people who sin in bookstores. There's some people that sin on Facebook. Was I allowed to say that? And, and, you know, so you have to know. You have to know. And you have to know where to put these recobite decisions so that this problem don't keep on in your life. And, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to do these really quick. Three major areas I think we have to look at in our lives. One is materialism. Uh, our, the Christian's life is not a factor of how much they have and how much fun and recreation they do. There's a place for recreation, and there's a place for things, but they dare not be our treasures. By the way, in relation to treasure, there's a verse that's really difficult for Mennonites to understand. Because I've heard this, this verse messed up, and, and it's a verse you all know. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you understand how it gets messed up? I'm going to tell you. A lot of people like to say that what that verse means is, I have to be careful not to make my things a treasure. That is not what the verse says. The verse doesn't say anything at all about you being careful not to put your heart in your house, your business, your goods. That's not what it says. It says... If you want to know where your heart is, just look where your treasure is. Wherever your treasure is, don't kid yourself. It's not a matter of you're going to put your heart there or not. It is there. Can you understand the difference? If you can identify where your treasure is, underscore it, your heart is there. Now, your goods don't have to be a treasure. 
Your goods can just simply be useful to you and useful in serving Jesus Christ. Your house don't have to be your treasure. Your business don't have to be your treasure. But if it is your treasure, that's where your heart is. If your treasure is Jesus, if your treasure, if you're looking up, and that's where your treasure is, then that's where your heart is. And, and people that have treasures in heaven have houses and vehicles and businesses. I mean, because God knows we need to earn a living, pay our bills. But he also knows where our treasure is and where our heart is. And so don't ask yourself, am I allowing my heart to go to my business? No. Just ask yourself if your business comes before Jesus Christ. If it is, it's a treasure. And if it's a treasure, that's where your heart is. I tried to make that simple. Can you understand that? And, and I believe that we Christians are all rich, pretty much, almost without fail in this society. Some of us don't have much in the black, in, in, in the ledger, but we're still living really well. We're eating well. We got good clothes. We got good vehicles. We got a bank account. Hey, most of the people in the world do not. And so I think we have to function as Christians, as rich people. In other words, we have to face up to the fact that it's important that we do good with our monies and, and serve God and serve others and that we're rich in good works and that we're careful that our goods serve the Lord instead of us serving them. And uh, many times we have to do some recobite decisions about that. And I don't know where that is for everybody, and I think even that varies some. But I want to give this testimony. There was a businessman in our home church, multimillionaire, many multimillionaire. I don't know how many. have no idea for sure. I know one thing. Somebody called his bank one time and asked him what his credit rating was. And the banker said, all I'm going to tell you is if we need money, we call him. And... Uh, That was the rest of the story. So he died, and then his widow died, and I got their car that was left over. That car, and I, and I want to tell you, whether you believe it or not, I don't have much money. I'm not in the millionaire category. But what I'm going to tell you is that their car coming to me did not raise my status at all. Can you understand what I'm telling you? Live simple. Live in a house probably as simple as I live in today did not use their wealth as a status symbol and served God. It is possible. Uh, when Jesus talked about rich people, you know, the disciples asked, who then shall be saved? And Jesus said, you know, with God it's possible. But you have to make some Rechabite decisions. You know, I believe that man made some Rechabite decisions. I believe that even he could have had a, I don't even know how to say these fancy names of vehicles, but is there a Lamborghini or something? Uh, you know, he could have had one of those easy. Uh, it wouldn't have dented his wealth hardly at all. But he made some Rechabite decisions. I'm not going to use God's money that way. Secondly, 
And we definitely need Rechabite decisions concerning media. You know, if the world's mentality is what largely drives our thinking, we're going to think wrong and we're going to live wrong. And so there's only so much we can saturate our minds with what the world is saying about issues, what the sports are doing, what the music of this world is doing, what the literature of this world's doing. If that's the principal influence upon our life, we're going to develop into worldlings. And so uh, I know some of you have internet. I have internet. There's some here that don't have, and I honor you for that. I'm seriously considering getting rid of it for myself because aside from the fact that it's so easy to slip into looking at something indecent for a man and for a woman, I think probably the biggest thing, I'm just guessing, ladies, okay, with a little bit of information. With ladies, it's probably wasting time on social media, but I don't know. Um, but aside from all that, just the influence of those who aren't godly upon our thinking. It's very dangerous business. And so if we're going to be warm-hearted towards God, we're going to have to make some decisions about these things. And some people, it's be get rid of a cold turkey. Other people, it might be limiting it to a certain amount. It might be staying off of certain sites. Uh, I can't tell you that Facebook's wrong. I don't have it. I have a, a son or daughter or two that have it. Um, I believe it can be controlled, used properly. But I don't know. It seems to be a real status driver or something. I, I don't know what all is wrong with it, but something seems to be wrong with it a lot of the time. Think about it. Uh, I mean, I think if you're honest with God, God will let you know whether it's a weight in your life or not. But we definitely have to draw limits on what sites we'll go to, what we'll read, what we'll look at, um, how much time we'll give to it. And I've failed in these areas. I want you to know I'm not standing up here as a perfect saint. I told somebody, I think it was today, that, you know, up to I was about 40, I thought I kind of had it figured out in life what I had to do to live holy and separate and be on top of things. And this whole thing of Internet came along, and i got to relearn it all again. Because now there's another whole category of influence and activity. And you can do games and you can download books and you can download music and you can check news real easy. And there's a whole host of stuff. And most of it doesn't promote holiness. And I just want to say this in closing tonight. That another huge area for Anabaptists anyway is the multitude of voices that are out there. Because another thing you can do on the internet is go to blogging sites, discussion sites. You can download series of CDs and information and books. You got a child raising problem, probably a hundred sources. Oh, I'm sure it's much more than that. Um, I know this is pretty raw, what I'm going to say, but the world's raw, and I'm going to tell you, I once checked to see what religious people thought about self-manipulation and sexual matters, and I found out that probably more religious people defend it than don't. Can you imagine that? So, I mean, there's all kinds of sources out there on every subject, and, and a lot of them 
are not the pure fountain of life. And I thought about, you know, when I grew up as a boy, yeah, we went to Bible school and we met other people with other ideas and stuff, but the basic frame of reference for truth was the truth we heard preached over our pulpits and read to us from our moms on their knees and what we got in the Christian school. But today, I mean, you can relate to voices from all over the world. And some charismatic person that can talk real well or write real well or praise God and say they got it all put together, we say, you know, that really sounds good because we're not getting that in our church. The problem is you don't really know what's, what they're made of. You don't even know if it's really working out for them. See, paper and, and all that can lay pretty still. and People can put on it what they want. And uh, I, I just want to say tonight, this book is pure. This, this is not a cistern. This is the well of life. And God says, my people have created two evils. They've done two evils. They've forsaken me, and this, this is included in that, the fountain of life, and they've carved themselves out cisterns, cistern water, and it's contaminated cistern water in place of this. I even have a problem. I'm not going to try to name names tonight. I have a problem with some of the places that you folks go to and that I go to and some of our advanced education and things, when they start giving too much room to church fathers, to men like Luther and Augustine and many other such famous writers, you see, maybe Elvis Presley can write a hymn that will bless your heart. But the problem is if you start thinking, you know, that's a great hymn, and you start identifying what's right but what Elvis Presley lived, you run into a real possible snare. And I know, I know Martin Luther done a lot for us in the sense of helping us to understand grace and faith and all that. But I have a problem appreciating the testimony of a man who will kill somebody because they don't agree with him. I think we've got purer fountains than that. We can come back to this. And, you know, church fathers, yeah, they, many of them were Christians. Many of them taught the truth and lived the truth. But you know what we have from the church fathers? Selective portions. <laughs> and, and you can go back there. Um, I... I read this long, long treatise on what, how we should look at divorce and remarriage, and especially this thing of whether uh, original marriage partners can go back together or not. And, and you know, uh, this person that wrote this real long treatise, he quoted some church father for about 15 pages. And I thought, okay, but I'm wondering about this church father. So I went back and researched this man and he basically was a celibate Catholic priest in the early stages of Catholicism. And uh, some of his views were skewed, my way of thinking. Uh, and so I'm asking, why do we feel like we have to fortify the truth 
with, with something that's not as pure and solid as what this is. Why don't we just learn to master the book and base our foundation of practice and belief on what it says? It really bothers me. Somebody who's a Christian Anabaptist writer needs to write a book. I won't tell you why they need to write a book. The most recommended book that I'm aware of amongst conservative Anabaptists to help men with pornography, that is to help them not to do it, is a divorced man. And so now if you believe what I believe, the man's living in moral sin, writing to us how to stay out of moral sin, does that make, does that make logic to you? Somebody who, need, who knows how to stay totally morally clean needs to write a book for that purpose. <laughs> that was just extra. If you don't agree with that, well, love me anyway, and I'll love you. But you see, the danger is if we open up our hearts to all kinds of influence that eventually we're going to be led to think that you can do things that go against God and his word and still be a good Christian. I, I think that's the danger of other cisterns. And so I'm not here tonight to say that we should never read other books. I do quite a bit. That we should never look at you know, concordances or commentaries or that we can't read what other people have to say about family life and marriage and child training and, well, just go down the whole gambit. But let's be careful. We must make some recobite decisions about the influences we allow in our life or we and our brethren are going to go astray. I'm convinced of that. And uh, I'd like to recommend, especially if you're young here tonight, I'd like to recommend something for you. Before you get caught up in a lot of other studies, saturate yourself in the word of God. I'll give you a few challenges. You don't have to do this to be a Christian, but I'm going to give you a few challenges. If you read four chapters in the New Testament one day and five the next, four the next, five the next, four the next, five the next, you can, and you, know, you can do that in 20, 25 minutes. You can read the whole New Testament in two months. Do it a couple times before you get so old and burdened children and a lot of other things in business and you don't have time for it. Sat yourself, saturate yourself in the word of God. And somewhere along the line, go ahead and read the Old Testament too because God left the whole book and you ought to read the whole book. I'd be almost tempted tonight, but I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot, to ask how many of you have read the entire Bible. If you're above 15 years of age and haven't done it, you need to get busy doing it. Read the whole book. Even if you don't get it done in a year, but stick with it. Mark them. Get it. Make sure you've read every chapter. I want to close out of Psalm 119, three verses there. And uh, probably kept you longer on Saturday night than I should. I guess I should have had the children's meeting tomorrow night. But anyway. We're going to close here. Just turn to Psalm 119, 
and we'll read verses 126 to 128. <clears throat> it is time for the Lord to work, for they have made void thy law. Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Now I would to God that you could embrace that tonight. Basically, in real simple terms, what those verses are saying is, Lord, we really need you in our day to come upon God's people and show them the right way. And God, I believe that everything you say is the way it is. And anything that don't agree with that, I hate. Do you believe that God knows what he's talking about when he talks about child training? Do you believe God knows what he's talking about when he talks about interpersonal relationships? Does God know what he's talking about when he talks about how man and woman ought to relate together in marriage? Does God know what he's talking about, money? And you just keep going down the line. Is God right when he says something? And I just hope you can embrace that and say, if God says it, that's the way it is. And if, and if it goes against what God says, then I'm against it. And if we're going to keep that kind of attitude, we're going to have to make some recobite decisions so that our thinking and the influence that affect our life doesn't lead us different. Let's stand for dismissal. <clears throat>